first became aware of the importance of being a woman when my husband was declared redundant on two different occasions. So we swapped roles, I went out to work and he stayed at home. Hi, I'm Mark Quinn. And these are the opening lines from one of the inspirational talks given by Mary Greenway called Enjoy Being a Woman with Men in Mind. Mary was brought up in Bray, County Wicklow in Ireland as Mary Quinn, the eldest daughter of William Quinn, a former commissioner of the Gardaí or Chief of Police for the Republic of Ireland, and her mother, Helen Quinn. She had four sisters and three brothers, and she's my Auntie Mary. We seem to be rolling away here. Good. Okay. So, Auntie Mary. (laughs) We recorded this chat in 2019 when Mary told me, among other things, that she'd had a brush with authority when she was just six, that she'd had 46 different jobs from traffic warden to fashion model, about the untimely death of her mother in a car crash, about giving those inspirational talks to hundreds of women across the south of England and appearing on TV on the X Factor. Auntie Mary, now in her late 80s, was born in 1933. I was born in Tipperary, in Mitchell's Road, Tipperary. One of my first memories was when I was six, I had scarlet fever and I had to be in uh, Ross Grey Hospital. Uh, which was an isolation when you had with, with scarlet fever you had to be isolated. It was 1939 and I was age six. I, I was in Roskay Hospital and I remember looking out the window and seeing my father coming up the driveway and he had then got promotion to chief superintendent and he was had been posted up to Dublin and I was driven straight through to, to Bray actually where he was chief superintendent of Bray, Wicklow and half of Dublin. And what what were your memories of Bray? I mean, you would have been nine or ten, so you probably remember the town then, do you? Uh, Oh, I do remember a lot about Bray. I remember Van Gordon, a neighbour, and our very first appearance of him, he wore these white shoes and was very spivvy. And Mammy didn't like him at all because he had a Dublin accent and he was like a spiv. And it wasn't at all Mammy's cup of tea. But she tolerated him and uh, they became great friends afterwards. First of all, I went to a private school, Miss Braden's. I had a nurse at the time who used to take me to school every day and we had a girl living next door called Mary Angela Carr. On this particular day, we arrived at the school and Betty, the nurse, had turned around and gone and I said to Mary Angela, I'm not going to school today. And so Mary Angela said, oh, you've got to go to school, you've got to go to school. I said, I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. So she said, well, I'm going. So she went into school and I went off up and I swung on the railway gates and a priest came along and he said, oh, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I said, they've given us a day off from Miss Braden's. I said, so I'm just filling in the time. And he said, oh, well, I was just about to visit them there. She said, well, I won't make the visit after all. <laughs> so I'm glad I got out of that one. So anyway, I, I then went 
up the road and I found this bush that they call it bread and butter and you can eat they said you can eat the bush so I thought well I'll do for my lunch so I, I was eating the bush and who came came down the road only my nurse and she waltzed me back to to school and I waited till she was out of sight and I came out back out again then when it came time to finish school and Mary Angela came out and, and we were ready there for for Betty to pick us up anyway that night there was a knock at the hall door and it was Mary Angela and Mammy answered the door and she said, Mrs Quinn, I, th- I feel it's my duty to tell you that Mary didn't go to school today. I heard the words from the kitchen, so I hid under the kitchen table. There was a long bar under the kitchen table and there was Mammy at one end and Daddy at the other trying to entice me out. And eventually my father dragged me out, but I took the, the, the board that I was holding on to with me. <laughs> So that was my one of one of my memories of Bray. So my, my, then then the he, the headmistress came to take, came to see Mammy and said, "I'm afraid I can't cope with Mary and the rest of the school. So and I'm not going to close down." So I was literally expelled at six years of age from from Miss Braden's. But in later years, when Miss Braden finally retired. She had me singing at her farewell do, and I sang, I didn't know the gun was loaded. (laughs) And you mentioned a nurse there. It sounds like sort of a privileged upbringing, was it? Well, no, it, it... In retrospect, it sounds like it is. And and if people talk about the times that they had in those years, I I feel almost ashamed to enter the conversation because of my background. But I thought that was the background that everybody had. There was a cook, a nurse, and Sheila was a housemaid. But you weren't allowed to say the word maid. (laughs) (laughs) See, you said (laughs) M-A-D-E instead. And who forbade that? They, they, They did. They didn't like being called that. Even though Betty was a nurse, Sheila looked after us. And would that have been the same for all of your friends at that time? Well, yes, because the people next door, they used to have a mate, but they only had one well, servant, if you like. But we, we didn't call them servants. They were, they were part of the family, really, because my mother used to play bridge and golf and everything, and we didn't, we didn't see her. And we weren't able to sit up at the dining room table until we were 13 to have meals with Mammy and Daddy. Now, where were we supposed to have learned how to behave at the, at the dining room table but from Sheila and Betty and Rita was the name of the cook Rita Bingham so they they virtually brought us up to the age of 13 but we didn't know it that was our life and and how did that affect your relationship then with your mother and father uh, we just had to had to get to know them really well I personally never really got to know my father and then when in later years when my mother died we son- he suddenly had to get to know us and, and I remember once working on the telephone exchange years later and I rang home one Easter and he answered the phone and he said I'm sorry there's no one here to talk to you and that was the end of the conversation How does that make you feel now looking back? Uh, um, well I, I I wasn't surprised by it because we didn't have much conversation. And are you saddened by that, though? No, 
to, to me, I just thought that's what happens. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I remember one Christmas, we were all sitting down. This was much later. We were all sitting down for a meal, and my father said, he said, there's not a child in this town that's got a dinner like we have here. And I thought, well, that's rubbish. Because I can imagine Margaret having a dinner, and all my friends having the same Christmas dinner as we did. So I said, no comment. <laughs> and he, he went to give me a clout, and I leaned forward, and Anne was sitting next to me, my sister, so she got the clout because <laughs> I got out of the way. But... Um, this is the extraordinary thing, was that I was sent to my room and Sean T. O'Kelly was the president at that stage and Daddy used to have to, uh, as, as representative of the guard, as, as the chief superintendent, he had to be there at Leopardstown and my mother did not want to go to Leopardstown with him so every year I went with him. So... I was, as I said, on Christmas Day, I was sent to my bedroom. And Aidan and Fergus, they all came up to me and said, you won't be going to Leopardstown tomorrow. I said, yes, I will. And they said, no, you won't, because Daddy's livid with you. I said, I'll be going to Leopardstown tomorrow. So being Christmas, the, the races began early, about half past 12. So I began to get ready. And I looked out the window and saw uh, my father's driver, Malloy, on his way up to get the car from the garage. And at about half past 11, Daddy stood at the bottom of the stairs and said, Are you ready, Mary? And I went down the stairs and I went off to Leopardstown. <laughs> so you're right. Forgotten. I just assumed I was going... Positive thinking prolongs life. <laughs> Well, I, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, when I hear these stories, it sounds to me as though from a very early age, you're a bit of a rebel. I, I'm afraid I was. I was a rebel. I mean, I knew that if I asked if I could do something, I'd get into trouble for asking. So I just went and did it. If I was caught, well, tough luck. I used to get terribly excited if I was going to a party. And they, they just couldn't tell me before I went because I, I was so sick with excitement. And my nurse would put my hair in curlers. But I also had buck teeth. And uh, I remember a party that I went to and the girl there called me Buck Teeth, the barrel boy. And it, it stuck a bit. But that was my music teacher's, her, her daughter it was. But I, I learned music for, for eight years I learned the piano for eight years and can't play a note. In fact, on quite a few occasions, I didn't go to them for the music lessons. I left home with my music case in my hand and then I'd knock at the music teacher's door and say, I'm sorry, I can't come today because I've got to help my mother in the house, which I did very little of. And this went on for about two months and I was delighted with myself until my mother met my music teacher in the town one day and she said, I, I feel guilty billing you for Mary's lessons. <laughs> Uh, because uh, her not being able to come. And I was, what do you mean not being able to come? She she, she left here to go off for a music, but she, she, when she didn't, she said you needed her at home. <laughs> it wasn't at the music exams. <laughs> Your mother seemed to enjoy life. Is that a fair comment? Oh, very much so. I'm afraid she was quite a snob. She used to go up to town on a Friday to get fish and we were lucky if she arrived back home with the fish. Why, where would she go? 
She'd be meeting people and chatting to them. You know, she forgot all about time. Of course, she'd go to mass first of all, and then, and then she'd go and get the fish. But she she played golf and she um, belonged to uh, two bridge clubs. One of them was a nice friendly one in the afternoon, and where they, where they did more chatting than playing bridge. But there was another one that was a Friday night one, and they were very very serious. And she used to come home and sit at the end of my bed, and she, I'm not going there anymore. I'm just not playing. I'm not taking it. I'm just not taking it. And next in the phone would ring, are you coming, Mrs Quinn? Yes. <laughs> and off she'd go. And do you think you were like your mother? Uh, really, I think probably we were almost too alike. And I, I loved my mother, but we just did not get on. Perhaps because you were alike. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that we were too much alike. Because she was a bit wild when she was young and she was an orphan. She was born in America. And when she was seven years of age, her father died. And three months later, her mother died. She was discovered holding her mother's hand by somebody reporting that three bottles of milk had been outside the door of the flat that they lived in. I don't know where it was in New York. But there were three bottles of milk, and they came in and found her mother had been dead three days, and she was holding her hand trying to wake her up. So then she came back and lived with an aunt and uncle in Waterford and was brought up with the daughter of the house. Mm-hmm. And, and she was pretty wild, because I remember once she was caught smoking and the nun said to her, um, how long have you been smoking? And she said, since I was that high. And she was, said she was about 12 or something like that, which was, was a dreadful thing in those days. And also, well... I don't know how true the story is, but she was quite a fearless horse rider and she climbed up on the roof of the house and galloped across the roof. It was quite a big house that they lived in and jumped off at the other end. Uh, so, OK, so really the, the, the wildness is in the blood, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. A different sort of, maybe... I wasn't as open as she was, maybe, you know, because I definitely was... Crafty, as my mother used to say, you know, if you put so much as much work into your homework as you did into into working out devilment, <laughs> <laughs> you get very well well on at your exams. Mammy used to make the balls for Daddy to fire, and he'd come in in a good humour, and then Mammy'd tell him something, and he'd feel he then'd have to wallop us with the result that we, we did regard him as the disciplinarian. But then Mammy had her, her times as well when she, you know, when she got annoyed with you and she box your ears like that and send to bed without your supper a lot of the time. But there was very nice lino on the floor of the bedroom and you could build a wonderful skating rink in your stockings. And then when Fergus and Aidan, because Fergus was marvellous at looking after the tennis court at the back, he kept that, he didn't play very much himself, but he kept that tennis court marked absolutely meticulously. It was cut and it was marked you know, with a plumb line and everything. And then in the garden when we played, we had, had the wheelbarrow and three of us could fit into the wheelbarrow because with legs dangling, one at the end and two at the side. And then there were the cigarette uh, packages that you paid, like players, and you paid for your journey. And God help you if you cross that garden without going by wheelbarrow. 
boss. Yeah, our boss. Well, that was the boss, boss. you see. And um, uh, Bray was up on the left-hand side and Dunleary was uh, over on the right. And uh, Dublin was uh, somewhere in the middle. Uh, Dublin was almost in the hen run, but of course you couldn't take the wheelbarrow up to the hen run. So, so the terminal was Dunleary and you changed then to go by foot to Dublin, <laughs> where the hen run was. And of course there was an air aid shelter as well down at the side of the garden, which, you know, was... Was I, I, I don't ever remember using that air raid shelter, but it was there in an emergency. We used to hate going and messaging because it was almost so, so much fun going on in the garden. And then Ferguson Aiden used to be the Normans. And I was terrified of the Normans, even though I knew it was Ferguson Aiden. And, and then, of course, Ferguson saying mass with a newspaper over his head. And we had all the chairs, so people would keep going in and out past each other. Do you know what I mean? And then I'd be over in a corner reading a book and Fergus would be saying mass in another corner. And then we want to go to the toilet. I want to go to the lavatory. <laughs> it was great fun, Thanks. though. The teenage years for, for anyone can be notoriously difficult to navigate. What, what were your teenage years like? I had lovely teenage years. Uh, of course, there were no such thing as hormones then. Yes, I don't blame for everything. To me, you were just a stroppy teenager, and that was. But the teenager word wasn't even invented. You know, you were just a, a stroppy and badly behaved. Because Margaret was with me a lot in 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 because we were best friends, and she was very very good. But also, her parents never told her off for anything. Whereas mine were forever looking out. And we both went to Miss Galway's college to do our shorthand and typing. My mother wanted me to have 110 words per minute in shorthand. And I went in for the 110, but I didn't get it, so I had to go for the 100. But I didn't dare tell her. So I left Miss Galway with a flourish, and Margaret left the same time, although she, she had also failed the 110. But, but, she, but she was clever enough not to not to even attempt the 110. She went straight for the 100. But, of course, I was the big, the big I am. I'm good. Then we were sitting in, in the breakfast room at home and Mark, and Mark had said, it's a shame that we didn't make the 110. <laughs> and my mother stood up and went upstairs. The next thing, a voice called from Mary. Come up, I said to Margaret, can I go home to your house to tea? <laughs> and, and she said, I heard that, you'll come up here. So I went upstairs and I got a walloping. And then Margaret went home, the discretion being the better part of valour. And my father came in and he was in a good humour, he was whistling. And next thing my mother said, come up here and find out what Mary has done. She has left Miss Galway's. But you see, Miss Galway's was the leading shorthand type of college in Dublin. And the whole thing was, if you had your certificate which signed with Miss Galway's, you were all right. So I had to go back next day and to check my hand to pay for another month in Miss Galway's. And Margaret went home and told her parents, and, and they said, oh, well, you know, what a shame. But anyway, if Mary Quinn's going back, you can go back with her. So we went back for the month and... We didn't get the 110, so we ended up... There was a Mr Barnes Academy in Bray, and Mr Barnes 
came to, to our house to give us the 110 and told us all the big words. <laughs> After all the money that was paid to Miss Galway, my hundred only had Mr. Barnes on it, not Miss Galway's. Okay, so then as you reached adulthood, if you like, what were you dreaming of? What, what were you dreaming of doing with your life? I just, just take it as it comes. I, ha- I hadn't any any real dreams about anything. It was just enjoy life and go to dances every Saturday night meet different blokes and, and, you know, go on dates. It sounds as though your parents, particularly your mother, were uh, sort of imposing their own dreams on their children. Oh, very much so. Yeah, because my mother wanted me to be a PE instructor. Well, I'm the last, uh, totally unphysical. You know what I mean? I hate exercise of any kind because I wanted to earn money as quickly as I could. So that's why I wanted to be a shorthand typist. And the nuns at the convent said... A miserable existence. Well, I call it coming from a nun. <laughs> <laughs> what? Where's the comparison? <laughs> I had a boyfriend at the time and they didn't approve of him. And my mother ha- had heard that if you join the Bank of Ireland, you're trained for six months and then you're sent down to the country. And there you meet a wealthy farmer and you're off your mother's hands. So definitely it was that uh, I was going for the Bank of Ireland. And so when the advertisement came out for the Bank of Ireland, it said, canvassing will disqualify. But nothing prevented my mother from going forward. So she got one of the directors to give me a reference. Now, how he could give me a reference, I don't know. He didn't know me from Adam. Also, Daddy changed half his bank account over to the Bank of Ireland. And then on the morning of the bank exam, I went into my mother and father's bedroom and said, I'm not going for this exam. And Daddy leapt out of bed, slipped on his pyjama cord, hit his head against the mantelpiece, and there was nearly another fatality in the house because me not going for the Bank of Ireland was a fatality. So anyway, my mother didn't speak to me for three weeks. She said she could hear me laughing off up the road on my bicycle because I didn't care whether she wasn't speaking to me or not. But it was a romance going at the time that they didn't approve of. And so she wasn't speaking to me, so I decided I'd emigrate. She had to speak to me to discuss that. But she said, well, all right, she said, I'll give in on condition that you stay in a hostel with nuns. So in order to get into the hostel, you had to have a letter from your parish priest. So I went up to see the priest, and he was very busy that day, and it was a very hot summer's day, and I got sick of sitting around in the presbytery. So I thought, I, I, I looked across, and there was a very nice writing bureau with headed notepaper on it. So I whipped myself two slices of headed notepaper and wrote myself a glowing reference, signed the parish priest. <laughs> Uh, presumably then you went to the nuns in England. Oh, I did go to the nuns in England, yes. And and what was life like in a nunnery in, in, in the UK? It was lovely. It was terrific. But I'll tell you what, though. People had sent, French people had sent their children to England to uh, learn to speak English. And they stayed in the hostel where it was full of Irish girls. So they went back to France speaking English with Irish accents. <laughs> Like, I've got things in my pockets <laughs> and things like that. But it was great being in the hospital because you never were lonely because if you, want, you were going to a dance or a picture or anything, you just stood up and said, anyone going to the pictures tonight? And three or four of them, we'd off we go. And whereabouts in England was this? In Westminster. 
And how long did, uh, did that last? I stayed there two years. I used to do a lot of riding in Rotten Row on a Sunday. Yeah, once a month on my payday. And then I'd dress up in my riding clothes, you see, get the horse out and go in Rotten Row and come back. And then I'd meet up with them and we'd go to a, a pub called the Grenadier. And because I had the riding clothes on, it made us look superior. So, so all our drinks were bought for us. So we used to look forward to once a month for me getting drunk after the riding. <laughs> I used to always drink a pint and a half of Guinness. So tell me about the various jobs you've had over the years. Oh, yeah, I had 46 jobs. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the first one was in Newcastle, in the hospital in Newcastle. I was sent down there and I arrived and they said to me, I'd be working on the switchboard. And it was one of those little bell-type ones that closed down, you see. And the woman showed me how to, to use it. And I was 18 at the time, you know, in one ear, out the other. Then it came to lunchtime and she said, well, I'm going to have my lunch now and I'm leaving you in charge. <laughs> well, I hadn't a clue who anybody was in the hospital. And yet there was, there was a book there with some names in it. And I thought, well, I'll try and tie up the names <laughs> with them. And uh, so I enjoyed the hour. But when, when she came back, I had to tell her the matron wanted to see her straight away. Nothing at all to do with me. And she came back and she said, you must have to pack your things and go, she said, because there's been utter chaos in this hospital for the last half hour. The gardener has been put through to the registrar. Well, you know hierarchies in hospitals, how sacred they are. So I said, well, what about my lunch? And she said, what about your lunch? So I sat on a wall for two hours waiting for a bus. Nothing has changed. <laughs> and t t tell me, why do you think you had so many different jobs? I mean, Well, because I got bored. I just got bored. Um, on one occasion, somebody said, when I'm 25 years here, I'll be getting a watch. And I thought, this is not for me. But I, I, I was very lucky because when I would leave a job... I, I, I would ring up a job I'd had before and they'd take me back. But then in those days, having shorthand and typing was the thing to have. You know what I mean? And you could always get a job. So, so, I, so I never starved. I belonged to the Challoner Club in Pond Street in, in London. And I wanted a job on, on Saturday mornings. I wanted to take my mother on holiday to Killarney. And there was a notice on the wall saying this fellow wanted somebody for Saturday mornings and then for a pound, which was a nice little bit of extra amount of money in 1958. And when I came back to the hostel, one of the girls, I was telling them about it, you see, and one of the girls said to me, oh, she said, I worked for him, she said, and he couldn't keep his hands off me. And I thought, well, that was a bit of a shock, you see. And then one of the other girls said to me, I've heard her cry wolf before. She said, I'd take that job on. So I did. Now, whether I lacked Margaret Moore's sex appeal or not, but he never laid a glove on me. In fact, I was quite disappointed. <laughs> 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 when 
where was I lacking? <laughs> but it, it was a great little job on a Saturday morning because sometimes if I, if I couldn't go, I'd send someone along and he'd say, are you sending a guest artist along next week? But he, he was German, actually. I got fed up working in the Royal Exchange in London because there was a supervisor and at the age of 55, they gave her a present of a plant. And she was terribly elated at getting this plant. And she went round to every department showing this plant. And I said to her, my, is this what I've left with at 55 years of age, becoming absolutely ecstatic over a plant? No, I am not staying in this insurance company for much longer. So I trained as a model. I gave up the permanent and pensionable job in the Royal Exchange, but I didn't tell my mother and father and trained as a model. Well, now, to actually make a career as a model, you'd actually have to have a sugar daddy or very wealthy parents, and I hadn't got either. So in order to have a living and stay on at the hostel, I got a job, I worked from a 10 to 4, in a, a solicitor's office and they allowed me to go for modelling jobs which is very lucky but I missed out on my luncheon vouchers from the Royal Exchange you know because I needed and you need to eat so I got in the hostel I got up early in the morning and I picked out two boiled eggs and put them in the pocket of the blouse that I wore so I had egg sandwiches and whether I had a very warm bosom or not I don't know those eggs were all hard boiled <laughs> So, so that's how I got my lunches. What sort of modelling work did you get? It was the trouble was it was an agency I'd go through, and I was thirty six, twenty six, thirty eight, which was a stock size. So they'd send nearly everybody on their books for the jobs. Then I got a fairly permanent job in a fur place in Aldgate East, where the, the furs were kept in freezing cold temperatures. And we were always taught who knew were modelling, always smile and show a nice hand. Always smile and show a nice hand. But when you were in a freezing cold coat, it was very difficult. It was more like a grimace <laughs> as you showed a nice hand. And uh, it came to Easter and it was a Jewish firm. So they were open all through Easter. And uh, I said, no, thank you. I'm not working through Easter. So... That was the only real sort of semi-permanent job I got as a model. The rest of it was you were sent to shops and that where they used to have afternoon teas and you walked around with the garments from the shops and showed them while they were having their tea, which I enjoyed doing that. Always remembering to show a nice hand. <laughs> And it was then that I met my husband in Caxton Hall. He made a date for the next day, and I was waiting for me to meet him in Archway Station. And he was late. And then I saw him coming. And he wasn't running. I felt he ought to be running if he was <laughs> coming to meet me. So I just turned around and went out to the other entrance to Archway Station. I found afterwards that he never ran anywhere. Ian never ran. But he found out the telephone number of every hostel in London and rang them and finally found me. So that was romantic, wasn't it? That was romantic. <laughs> <laughs> and so romance flourished then from there, did it? Well, not as far as my fa family were concerned. He was a penniless Protestant. <laughs>
<laughs> because as the saying goes, a terrible thing happened to her. She married a Protestant. I, I, when I got engaged, I, I daren't tell them. So I rang Frank Gordon, our next door neighbour, to ask him would he go in and tell them. And I remember my father coming over to vet him. He did. And someone gave him a present of the Sacred Heart. He had one of these very heavy cases, and he carried this case with statue of the Sacred Heart. And we, we used to keep it on the table just inside our hall door when we were married. And the number of times the head was knocked off <laughs> the Sacred Heart, you wouldn't believe. But anyway, he, he, Daddy came and he met Ian, and Ian had a baby sham. And when, when he had gone to order the baby sham, Daddy said to me, Does this tell a drink? <laughs> A baby sham. (laughs) (laughs) My mother came over for the wedding, but my father didn't. And he said he'd pay for half of it, but he never did. So my wedding was a very small one. The night before the wedding, Mammy said to me, do you realise what you're letting yourself in for tomorrow night, you see? So I thought, oh, this is our first talk about the birds and the bees, you know, and I was 28 at the time. <laughs> and um, I said, well, what did you have in mind? And, and she said, well, she said, you're going to get an awful lemon, she said. And that was it. So uh, when I was on my honeymoon, we were in, went to Bath on our honeymoon and we were walking down and uh, past the shop and it was a newsagent and there was a picture of a lemon in the window. So I bought that postcard and sent it home. I've just had this. (laughs) She got the woman next door to make the wedding cake. I'll never forget, she had nine eggs. (laughs) Nine eggs in the cake, which was an enormous amount. But my brother Brian went with her to give me away. And she was sitting there, surrounded with the case with the cake in it and wedding presents for me. And she was surrounded by all these, you see. And a man came along and said, is all this yours? (laughs) And she said, no, certainly not. And he went off then to drop drop another clangor somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) But the, the, the very tragic thing then was that it was the last time I saw my mother because six weeks later, she was killed. I remember a quote from my grandfather, your father, saying that his wife had been born into tragedy, as you mentioned, and died in tragedy. Yes, yes, he said that. And just explain then, if you wouldn't mind, what happened to your mother, how she died. Oh, she had been visiting some friends... And they were driving, um, I think it was a bridge party, and they were, she was driving home uh, near Stradbrook there. And a car came out of a side road right across her bows, and the steering wheel went up through her chest. I, I'm not sure if she was dead when she was taken to the hospital, but uh, she, she didn't, didn't survive for very long. Uh, uh, but she was the only one killed in that car crash and the other other three escaped. I'm Mark Quinn and this is a chat with my Auntie Mary. It's Saturday the 11th of November 1961 and Mary's mother has just been tragically killed in a car crash in Black Rock in County Dublin. 
Mary's father, who at the time was Assistant Commissioner of the Gardaí, the Irish police force, was dealing with the possibility of the first ever all-out strike of the force. He was called out of a tense meeting and was told that his wife had been in a car accident. When Mary's father arrived at the hospital, he was shown into the room of one of the three surviving women, leading to confusion about who had survived and who hadn't. He subsequently discovered the tragic truth. And as a mark of respect, the Garda strike did not go ahead. How did your mother's death affect you? If I'd been living at home and she was part of my daily life, I think it would have affected me more than it did. But I do remember going home for the funeral and that, and all the aunts that came to the funeral, and they were all sitting around the table, and and we needed to lay up the table for for the thing, and and they were all chatting away, and I said, how dare they chat away? And, and my mother's just being killed, and that's why they're here, and I said, I've got to lay up the table, so they all had hats on them, so I got the tablecloth and I flung the tablecloth over, knocked <laughs> all their hats off. That's a beautiful, terrible thing. They, they didn't forgive me. And and how did it affect your father, her, her death? I don't know if anybody knew how it affected him, but my sister, my youngest sister, she had to take over the household then and, and look after him. And she had, had only just started to train in Cattle Brewer Street she had started in the September, and she was going to make that her career. But because of my mother dying, she had to give that up straight away. No one asked her if she wanted to or not. She had to give it up to look after him. And he used to go to the church every night and make her go with him and sit there while he prayed and prayed. He, he prayed his way through, I think. Mm. I, I don't think feelings were discussed. Because every, every one of them had a different way of grieving. Every one of your brothers and sisters you're talking about? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Had a different way of grieving. And the person who really suffered the most was my sister Ursula, because she was a great favourite of my mother. And the thing is, they were at a dance in Woodbrook, and, and they came home to, to this news. But also there was going to be a, a, a guard, a strike, and it was cancelled. And, and Daddy was the assistant commissioner at that stage. And that strike never came off. But the extraordinary thing was that he later forgave that man who had driven that car. Yet he could never forgive me for marrying a Protestant. I'm just thinking back now of uh, what my father said to, to Aidan in, in a letter. Uh, she died a violent death, but she wasn't a violent woman but she had a hell of a temper on her. You, you mentioned a few times they're getting walloped. I mean, was that a feature of, of... I'm afraid it was, but I'm afraid I've got quite a few wallopings in my time. But then I, I, I almost felt I deserved it. But do you really feel that, though? Do you, I mean, you had children of your own subsequently, and looking back at these things, you know, they just seem barbaric, don't they? Well, of course they do, and nowadays they'd be, they'd be a criminal offence, hmm. wouldn't it? 
Mm, absolutely. Although I, I, I remember I, I used to wallop mine with a wooden spoon on the legs if they d- didn't obey me or things like that, with, with, the, with the result that I only had to go to the drawer where the wooden spoon was and rattle it. And the behaviour changed <laughs> miraculously. But it's funny because I think if you grow up in a house where there is, let's call it, corporal punishment, then it's inevitable that you'll do the same when you become a parent. Yeah, yes. Really, it was being a bully, wasn't it? It was being a bully. When I met my husband then, his family were all moving down to Bournemouth. So they asked me if I would go with them. And you did? And I did. And then the first job I applied for was in an estate agent, and they said to me, have you got a boyfriend? And I said, what's that got to do with this? And they said, well, we don't want someone who's going to be rushing away exactly half past five. I said, what, for £6.10 a week? No, thank you, I won't be having the job. Because I was earning £11 in London. Another tragic turn of events happened in December 1965, when Mary's older brother, Fergus, lost his young wife, Avril, to cancer. Avril was also my mother and mother to my sisters, Helen and Claire. Mary, who had a young daughter, Fiona, was asked by her father to come and stay with us in Leicester for a few weeks to help out. I was eight and I remember that sad time. Mary says she initially struggled, taking on three extra children. I remember being very hard on you, uh, you know, and and shout because I I just didn't know how to cope to going from one to four mm-hmm. overnight, and um, I, and I remember being very hard on you, and and shouting at you for this. And then I suddenly said to myself, "These children have lost their mother." Do you know what I mean? What what you know? How dare I be hard with them? Do you know what I mean? I said, they, Mark particularly couldn't, you know, he must know whether he's on his head or his heels. Yet you never asked me, you know, where, where was Mammy? And then when they're going to school, then you know, I take you all to school. And, and uh, Betty uh, next door and um, Kath Grundy, they were great housekeepers. And I was never much in the way of a housekeeper. So they, they, would, they would clean the house for me if I took the children to school. Well, of course, it was great. I thoroughly enjoyed hopping and skipping down the road to school every day with you. Mm. And then when it was Claire's birthday, because her birthday was beginning of January, and it was the first birthday, but that was, it was her, I think she was she too. I think she was two, two. Yes, yeah, two, yeah, because yeah, Fiona had been two previously. She was two, and they did the party for me so long as I arranged all the games. And so we all worked along beautifully. So you got on well with those neighbours? I got on very well with them, yes. And, and then Helen had a party at school, and everyone was told to bring their own mug to the school. But Helen didn't tell me that she needed to bring a mug. And so she went off to the school without without a mug and they had to lend her one. Well, that made her different. What I didn't realise was that anything that made you different because you'd lost your mother was hellish for you. And, of course, I didn't appreciate that till it happened. Your dad's car... <laughs> was always breaking down and, uh, and th- then on one occasion um what was it uh, it was to do a betty betty next door learning to drive you see 
and uh, uh, Fergus uh, uh, would go, uh, he was looking for a housekeeper for to look after you, you see. And uh, he said to Betty, would, would she like to come along for the driving? She could practice her driving. And and he had one window that wouldn't fasten and wouldn't come up in the car, so uh, um, uh, it, it, there was it went off to Nottingham and there was an M M something or another. I remember Betty saying, she said, "Life is hard enough," she said, without driving along the M1 with the window down and Gosquin. <laughs> well, I remember once too we were uh, going over a humpback bridge and the car stalled, and it was going up. And <laughs> And I'm back, trying to get back over it. And, and then on another occasion, the car broke down and I had to push it along. And he was sitting in it, you know what I mean? He was sitting in it, uh, trying to get it to go. And I was pushing. And he said, you're not pushing hard enough. And I, I, I never, I never swear. But I said, I just stood back and I said, fuck you and your fucking car. I said, you, you can get home yourself. I said, I'm going by bus. And of course, all the kids were in the back, uh, in, in, in the back of the car. So, what did you learn from the whole experience? I mean, did you, do you feel that it was uh, something that you're glad you did? or? Oh, yes. I'm always glad that I did. Yeah, because um, just being able to do something to help, because you always feel that you, you, you're not able to do anything. You, mm. you do things in the background, but I was able to do something in the foreground. As you probably gathered, my Auntie Mary loves an audience and she found her niche when she put together a highly successful series of inspirational talks specifically aimed at women. She traveled the length and breadth of Southern England where she lived, giving these talks under the name of Kate Greenway. I was driving home one day and I was stopped at the traffic lights outside the school and I noticed that all the boys, it was a school obviously they didn't have a uniform, and, but they had a uniform in the sense they all wore jeans. And I thought, well, honestly, I said, whatever happened to the girl with, with, with the swirling skirts of the 50s? You know, none of these girls were dressed like women. So I thought, I know, I'll start off a, a course called Modeling for Fun. It was consists of, of, of a 10-week thing and I had arranged for a hairdresser that would do their hair and then have their makeup done and all that kind of thing. And I, I booked a hall, but only two people arrived called Trixie and Tina, a granddaughter and a grandmother. And I thought, well, I, well, this is not going to get me anywhere. But anyway, I ran a badminton club at the time. And one of the girls at the badminton club said, look, she said, you must have got together quite a bit of information to think of doing that course and sustaining it. She said, why don't you talk about it instead? And I said, well, no, I can't, no, no. Then I thought, I said, well, I know that hadn't worked, but nothing succeeds like success. So let's pretend that that never happened. And, and she said, I belong to a group of women from a very posh area of Poole. And she said, now come along and give them a talk. And so that's how it started. And that was called Enjoy Being a Woman with Men in Mind. But it got misinterpreted. 
On one or two occasions, I used to send the money that I got for it to this particular charity, and they had an open day and invited me along. The chap who, who was the top man in the thing uh, was introduced me and said, and, and this is Kate who talks about enjoy being a woman with men in mind, you see. And about a fortnight afterwards, I had a phone call and uh, he said, I've had a very bad back for some time and I can't seem to get any relief. I wonder, could you come round and massage me? <laughs> he had thought, enjoy being a woman with men in mind. <laughs> Another thing, I said, I'm afraid you've got the wrong idea. So I never gave any more money to that charity, I can tell you that. And later on, he, he got an OBE for his services <laughs> to... <laughs> this is where positive thinking came in. I had got together what I wanted to say for three quarters of an hour. And I knew that as soon as I stood up, I had my audience. It was a bit rude, you see. And I, 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 saw, I first became aware of the importance of being a woman when my husband was declared redundant on two different occasions. So we swapped roles, I went out to work, and he stayed at home. Now, there was nothing that man couldn't do. He washed, he ironed, he cooked, he sewed. And at night, you would see him with a pile of sewing next to him and me reading a book. But he developed the headaches. Then, one afternoon, when the children were playing outside, I said, after a glass or two of, of sherry, I said, you know, I fancy going upstairs. And he said, I'm sorry, my dear, but I've got a white wash coming out in 10 minutes. <laughs> so I said, oh, no, don't change it on my account. But I found it as a direct challenge. So I went into Annette Louise, which was a naughty underwear shop in Bournemouth, and there I bought a pair of black seam stockings, red and black suspender belt, a black lacy bra and a pair of knickers that weren't worthy of the name. There were a little bit of shearing elastic with a red triangle front and back and a yellow butterfly strategically placed across the middle. So I took this lot home and I put it on and I stood at the top of the stairs and I said, Ian, and he said, what is it? I said, it's an emergency because it was fast becoming one because shearing elastic and ample hips don't go. <laughs> and it was slowly rolling downhill. <laughs> so he came to the bottom of the stairs. He was polishing the shoes in the lounge and he put the shoes on his and life changed after that. That's the, that was the beginning of it all. And then it began to stretch to other areas my many occupations. I thought, well, there's another three quarters of an hour in that. And then I was on several television programmes. So it was my auditions and appearances on TV. Then I was, at the time, a traffic warden. So it was the human side of a traffic warden. Not the humorous side, the human side of a traffic warden. It's because I believed in myself. I was told that with a talk, you have to have a beginning, a middle and an end. But mine became all mixed up. You wouldn't know which was which. And then I realised to get the structure right, it would be better. Because if I have my opening sentences right, I have my audience. And I knew how to pitch it. And also I knew my Irish accent helps. Because people, oh, I love the Irish You know, pe people do, they are suckered by it a little bit. 
And did you learn it off by heart or did you just... No, no. It was never by heart. And, and, but, but I never had a note. Mm-hmm. It's because it, it all had happened. It was all factual. None of it was made up. And what sort of feedback did you get then from your audiences? I don't think I ever had a bad audience. And once or twice I could see people sort of sitting, looking a bit stony-faced. To me, the most important thing is eye contact. I looked out at my audience and I spoke to them all as if they were individuals. In a way, it was like an orchestra. But I knew that as soon as I stood up there, I was in charge. And there's a sort of a serious side to this too, insofar as you were doing it to, I suppose, inspire other people, and then you got something out of it as well, presumably. Oh, I, I, I loved it. And, and I felt I was go- travelling all over the Dorset countryside to chat to friends. Very often I would be somewhere and next thing someone would say, oh, it's Kate Greenway. I recognised your voice. And when I went on the cruise with Monica... Three people recognise me in the middle of the Mediterranean. <laughs> Fame at last. Fame at last, yeah. <laughs> but, but some of the, my talks had pathos. You know, but I never bought in the fact of my mother dying. Why not? Because I felt it would clash with the feeling that I was hopefully giving to my audience. And what were you trying to bring to the audience? Were you trying to inspire women to be more independent? or what? Were yeah, you... I think that, well, that's what it started off with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, to, not so much to be independent. It's just to be aware of being a woman because it is a huge thing to be aware that you're a woman because so many women are put, put down, aren't they? Mm. And if you're, if, if you're aware of yourself, and also I believe that Self-analysis is very important, not too much, but a little. Also, I, I picked up from audiences. I felt I gave them something, but they gave me something back. And also, I had plenty of laughter. I always aimed at laughter. And they say that, that's a great medicine. The best, they say. Yeah, the yeah, best, yeah. yeah, yeah. In 2010, you, you lost Ian, your husband. Yeah. And tell me about that. Well, he had dementia. He, but he was a very, very good dementia patient. Because with dementia, again, it's a very individual thing, like grief. But uh, he never gave me any trouble at all. Except when I was putting him to bed. Because uh, when, I, when I get him into the bed... I was trying to get him to move over, but he didn't know how to do it, and I couldn't lift him. But at the same time, people who said to me, oh, you're marvellous, and this, and but I didn't see how, what. Is your, someone is your husband, so you, you nurse them. And he had to have a catheter, and I have a granddaughter, Loli. She was about 10 at the time. On one occasion, I was down in the laundry room, and when I came back up, she said to me, oh, I emptied Grandpa's catheter, she said. And I thought that was amazing at 10 years of age. Mm. She said, because it looked as if it was full and he looked uncomfortable. It it was hard work looking back, but it is what you do. 
Yes, if you love someone, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, I, I couldn't understand people saying to me, you're marvellous and you're this, that and the other thing. <laughs> because it wasn't, it was your life, it was what happened. And, and then when he did finally pass on, how difficult was that for you? Well, there was remorse there because he was in respite care when he died. And the doctor said I had to have a holiday. So I was in, in Galway on holiday when he died. And I felt if I had been looking after, because you see, he, he wouldn't eat for them. When people stop eating, that's the worst thing. Because how can you survive? So I felt remorse. And of course, there's the usual loneliness. I don't know. It's, it's something you get through. Every few months, if you look back on those few months, you will see a difference in yourself. And did you cry a lot? In bursts. It would come over like a great big well of of uh, thing, and I would cry then. But um, I didn't cry a lot, no. And what about your children, Jeremy and Fiona? Oh, Jeremy's terrible. He, he goes to pieces anyway. He he just at any funeral or anything, he just cry buckets. I I got Fiona to ring him, to tell him. He got his mobile phone and threw it in the ground. He said, Dad's dead. And, and they ha- he had been to the nursing home to see him, because he lives locally to me, just the Sunday before. And so they couldn't believe like it was so sudden. Because mm. it wasn't expected at all, mm. you know, that he would die. Mm. But, but he, he died in, in his sleep. They found him dead, which was, was a wonderful way for him to die. Four years afterwards, Jeremy was on, on Plenty of Fish, which is a, a dating agency, and he said, why don't you have a go, Mum? So I said, oh, no, I can't be bothered. And so he said, go on, just for a bit of a giggle. So anyway, I had a settee, and at the back of the settee, I had all these animals along in a row, and the picture was me sitting on the settee, and it was upside down, the picture was... <laughs> And the most extraordinary people answered. One one bloke called himself the Boston Dangler. <laughs> well, there were some very foul people that came on. And there was one chap, I did go out on two dates with him, but uh, there was no chemistry there, so I didn't bother my head. And then I hadn't heard anything for about three months, and then Peter said that he'd like to meet me. So uh, we text for a while and then we met in a place called Upton Park, a nice open place, you know, and had coffee. And then we text again for a while. And I said to him, what made you? He said, well, he said, I thought of an extraordinary person that would just sit there upside down with all the animals along on a row at the back. She <laughs> must be a bit different <laughs> than the others, you know. <laughs> all the poses that you get. <laughs> and what's it like falling in love at such a late stage in your life? Well, um, it, well it, it's really more companionship. Both my, my children and his children think it, it's great because it takes a load off their minds because he does take care of me. I mean, he's 90 and I, I'll be 86 in October. And he's, he's much fitter than I am. 
he really does care for me. I think that's more important, really. Well, at our age, certainly. I think I'd have lost my zest for living if I hadn't... Because I had really, in a way, lost it. I didn't care about... Although I, I run a friendship club for senior citizens every Wednesday... I'm the leader of the club, because I like being the leader, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> and I have four or five volunteers and about uh, 20 members. I'm Mark Quinn, and this is my chat with my Auntie Mary, who's looking back over a life lived to the full, and who, as well as making several local television appearances over the years, applied for and got onto the X Factor. <laughs> well, of course she did. I arrived for the audition, and my audition was supposed to be at nine o'clock. And when I got there, there was about 5,000 people all in the queue. I was there early, of course. At half past eight, they announced that they, they weren't finished with the first lot of auditions yet. And so eventually I got in at one o'clock, and I was put in a holding bay. And I was about the oldest there, as you can imagine. Then I finally saw a producer at uh, about, I think about four o'clock in the afternoon, and she said to me, what are you going to sing? So I said, I didn't know the gun was loaded. And she said, where's that from? I said, I haven't a clue. So anyway, she said, we'll sing it. So I sang it. And, uh, and she had all these red letters in front of her. And yes, she said, I, I like you, she said. I said, does that mean I get a red letter? And she said, yes. So that meant I was through to the next audition. So when I came through to the next audition, there were just as many people. But this time you saw three producers and I sang my song again. But one of them was was one of the ones I'd seen the last time. And she said, I liked you the first time, she said, and you're going through to the judges. So it was Simon, Louis and Sharon. So as soon as I came on, Simon went, oh... He said, what nerve makes you think you could possibly have the X Factor? I said, because you don't know what it is. And that's why it's called the X Factor. And I said, and there are six million senior citizens out there all prepared to vote for me, modesty being my strong point. (laughs) (laughs) And then I saw him whispering to Louis Walsh, you see. So I said, Simon Cowell, what are you... Because he said, I didn't care. What do I, I knew it wasn't going to win it, but it was all good fun. So I said, Simon Cowell, what are you whispering to Louis Walsh? And he said, Louis wants to know, have you got stockings and suspenders under that dress? I was wearing this very flamboyant red dress with black spots on it. I don't know if you've seen it or not. So I lifted up the skirt like that (laughs) and got a great response from them. And then came to the judging. I said, Simon, I'm not even going to ask you to judge because I know you don't like me. I said, so, Louis, what do you think? I was told to flutter my eyelashes at Louis, but which is a complete waste of time because he's gay, isn't he? But I said, hey, what did you think, Louis? Louis said, I think you're fantastic. I said, thank you, Louis. And then I came to Sharon, and Sharon said, you've got great, great personality and full of confidence. I said, is that a yes, Sharon? And she said, yes. So I was through to boot camp. At boot camp, Simon had the 16 to 24s in an English manor house and he arrived in a helicopter. Louis had them in a castle in Ireland. Where were we? In a sleazy nightclub in Soho, which doubled as a pole dancing club in the evening. 
which disgusted Fiona because she, I think she had visions of her mother taking part in the pole dancing. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> She'd done everything else. Anyway, I had learned lessons before about the hospitality in these green rooms and that. So I had a jolly good breakfast. But anyway, I shared a room with a woman and she snored all night. And in the following morning, she said to me, let us pray, she said. I said, look, I said, I've been praying all night that you shut up snoring. I said, I didn't get any response then. I said, I doubt I could have much of a response now. So anyway, we were all taken down to the sleazy nightclub and Sharon didn't arrive till four o'clock. And we were there at about nine o'clock. And we had to learn a Beatles song in three days. And... By the time I got on there, I was so... I could see why it was all for young people. I was so exhausted. I couldn't hardly remember what song I was singing. (laughs) And Sharon had to help, and she said, I'm sorry, Kate, she said, I don't think you're through. And I said, I... I'm hoping I'm not through because you'd have to learn another song from some other young group for the following day. So that was the end of my thing in The X Factor. Let's look back a little bit then, I suppose, you know, at this point in your life with your added maturity and wisdom from all these years. <laughs> I mean, how do you look back? And, and, and I suppose what might you, if you could, what would you have changed or what would you have done differently, do you think? Um, I probably would have married better. <laughs> no, not a penniless protestant, uh, you know, So what you're saying is that had you married someone else, well, your life would have obviously been different. Yeah. I think I was allowed to fulfil myself. That's positive. So you're joking when you said that you should have married better. Well, you asked me the question, uh, would I have changed things? And on a certain plane, there are probably things in life that I might have gained more from materially. But I had a lot of adventures in life. But then also I put the family at risk that we ended up being homeless because they took a job as a Kilcom butler in, in a stately home in Ireland and, and that didn't work out. So a friend of mine in Bournemouth said, well, why did you come back here? Because at least the children started off here, they were born there. So we went back to Bournemouth and we stayed with a friend for a while and then we got the social services to fix up in bed and breakfast. And I immediately went to work in Pontons in the finance department. I'd never done finance before and they went belly up not long afterwards, whether there's any connection or not, I don't know. (laughs) But Ian looked after the children, and I was the breadwinner. Then it was decided that the social service would withdraw support to homeless families. So I said to Ian, go back, go straight down to the Echo office and tell them our story. So he went down, but whatever way he told it, it was reported as unemployed man from St Albans uh, is being evicted, you know. And I thought, well, that's not going to do us any good. So I wrote to the Echo and I said, even though my husband is unemployed, I am employed and he's looking after the children. And as I said to my little son last night, as I read him Dick Whittington, he was just like us with no cosy home to go to. Three days later, I had a house, (laughs) (laughs) which was furnished with all the um, furniture that the auctioneers didn't want that was left over. Mm -hmm. And among them was a rocking chair. 
and I was sitting in the rocking chair and Ian came in and said, you know, what are you doing here in the dark? I said, I'm just enjoying having a roof over your head because when you're down there, there's only one place you can go. And then I became a traffic warden. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's up or down, I don't know. know. And, And I suppose just to kind of wrap up, if you like, the inevitable that's going to face us all, I suppose, is is death. Uh, you know, since two thousand and seven, you've lost like five of your siblings, and oh, there's, gosh, and there's yes. only only two left, basically, and your and yourself, obviously. Yeah. I mean, does it make you think about death, your own death? Oh, I, I, there are times I just can't believe it. I can't believe it. You know that they're not there to, when, you, when you want to talk to them. But then. Um, uh, I, I got to know Aidan better over the years. I used to ring him every week. and But then he, he developed a, a slight dementia. But then he died very tragically by choking when he was in a nursing home, ready to come home. Well, it, it just does remind you of your own mortality. And, and how do you feel about that? Are you, if you like, ready to die, as it were? Well, I have three different conditions, bicentia gravis, osteoporosis and orthostatic tremor. <laughs> and I know that ultimately they will, will not have pleasant ends, but I don't allow myself to dwell on that. I just enjoy uh, every morning I wake up. And as I said, I, I run this venture club and I, I love that. And what's the secret then to, to longevity? Well... Positive thinking, I think. You've been listening to my Auntie Mary, who sadly passed away on the 27th of May, 2022, in her 89th year. I'm Mark Quinn. Thanks for listening.